Hey everyone, I should be live, uh, but as always, I require some kind of confirmation of my existence. So I'll let somebody uh, tell me that I exist. Um, unfortunately, uh, it looks like my guest is running behind. Uh, so I may, we may have to, it just be a solo stream with just me. Um, so uh, we'll stay tuned. If he, if he drops in, then we'll get rolling. And if, uh, if he doesn't, then we won't and I'll reschedule because uh, he's going to be a great guest. He's got a lot of really interesting projects on the go. Um, but I totally understand if uh, if there's been a malfunction of technology. So uh, just a little bit of uh, <coughs> housekeeping uh, before we get on. Um, uh, so as you know, uh, the plan was for me to go to uh, Tokyo uh, on Thursday. And things are kind of accelerating in Japan, and uh, they shut down Studio Ghibli, Ghibli, so we can't do that. Um, they've shut down a bunch of other stuff. Looks like some schools are closing down. So at this point, I think uh, we're going to postpone our trip. Clearly, uh, the timing is getting pretty bad, and I don't think it's the right time, which is heartbreaking and is going to cost me some money. But at the same time, like I just, I can just see that the country is kind of on high alert. A lot of the world's on high alert right now. And I'm not worried about getting sick about from the Coronavirus. Um, but I can just see that that it's kind of, uh, it's going to be sort of <laughs> sort of described as like a like a panic ghost town. Um, and so I just kind of can see it's not right the right time to just go on a trip where you're just trying to have fun. So it sucks. Logan is sad because this was our plan. We were going to go and just have fun and and just, you know, just hang out and check out all the new video games and and eat interesting food and um, and see all the stuff that I've wanted to see. And like I gave Logan the choice. I'm like, where do you want to go in the world? Like, let's and then I waited for the right time to pounce and then cheap flights came up. And so we booked the trip. And but clearly, like, it's just it's not the right time. Like, I just know like, that the whole country is just on is on tenderhooks. And I don't want to contribute to it. And I don't want to be a part of it. Um, <clears throat> to make their life more difficult to uh, try to organize me having a good time, right? Like, I could, I could just imagine, right? Like if I've got the flu and I'm trying to also be a good house um, host, it must be tough. So uh, I've already spent money on flights and hotels and that money's gone. And so, uh, and then we'll wait and then maybe we'll, uh, we'll wait until things settle down and we will uh, take another crack at it. So, um, <clears throat> Larry Beckins, two words, travel insurance. Uh, yeah, I have some travel insurance, so I will, uh, you know, I'll sort of see what I will get back, but it might very well be that I have to eat everything. Who knows? I'm not really thinking about it right now. You know, at the end of the, the, end of the day, I could just see that it's, uh, it's just not the right time to, to, uh, to travel, which, which is bad because I'm like the kind of person who is like, you know, don't worry about this kind of thing. But, um, uh, but I can see that the country is worried about this thing right now, like the news is bad. Anyway, so 
What's bad news for me, it's good news for you, uh, which means that I will almost certainly be around for uh, all the various shows over the next couple of weeks. So, um, so no guest right now planned for next week's open space, but now I guess there's a slot open, so maybe we'll do this again next week. Um, but just to give you some, again, some updates, uh, on Monday, March 9th, I've got Rob Hoyt from Tethers Unlimited, which is really exciting. I want uh, to do that. Um, of course, we've done a lot of videos about Tethers Unlimited, so that's going to be really exciting. Um, on the 12th, at a funny time, is uh, the Jim Al-Khalili, who uh, is just going to be just going to be great. Again, he's a very famous broadcaster in the UK. Uh, so we're doing it at UK time, but I will give you an updated calendar as we get there. Um, then the Monday after that, we've got Susanna Kohler, who runs Astrobytes and is part of the American Astronomical Society. And then the week after that, again at a funny time, is uh, Ryan Watkins, who's another uh, lunar researcher. So uh, we've got a bunch of really good stuff uh, planned coming coming up. So I guess it's good that we'll have another just me hanging out episode, and we'll see if uh, if Phil can uh, Phil may very well just drop in. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, we've got Jim, which is going to be great, um, and for the whole hour. So I feel really honored that we're going to be able to um, just hang out and and chat. So <laughs> tell, tell Logan the Nautilus do that. Yeah, no, I absolutely. You know, Japan's not going anywhere, and it's the one place that he wanted to go to more than anywhere else. Me too. Uh, so we will definitely be back. So uh, I guess as we wait for, uh, for Phil to either show up or not show up, uh, why don't we uh, just shift into what we normally do, which is to talk about your, about your questions. Um, and I'm going to try and kick into like real spacey space questions. So, um, oh, and uh, right, one last piece of uh, information. We've got the new episode of The Guide to Space tomorrow, which is all about the Artemis Landers. Uh, options. And it's a long episode. We put a lot of work into this one, so I hope you really enjoy. That's tomorrow, premiering at noon, much to the chagrin and sadness of a bunch of people who have made their concerns noted to me, again, giving me the thumbs down. And uh, I have responded uh, politely as I can. So, all right, uh, let's get into uh, some of your questions. Let's see. So good friends uh, will be posting some questions, hopefully, for me. Um, <laughs> Delicious Plum. Since this is a moon-themed show, has China's space agency recently sent a rover to the moon? Yeah, the Chinese have sent uh, a rover to the uh, to a pretty interesting place on the moon, which is the moon's southern pole in the permanently shadowed sort of the region on the far side near these permanently shadowed craters on the moon and the rover's actually been there for a long time for about uh, about a year now and it's a bit of a technical challenge because on the moon you only get sunlight for half of for um, like for half of your full month around the trip around the moon and so for two weeks the rover is in the dark and then for two weeks the rover has sunlight and so it has to do its work two weeks at a time, slowly crawling around, doing some observations, waiting in hibernation for two weeks, and then doing some more uh, crawling around. And uh, so it's sort of an interesting technical challenge. On the first day that they landed on the moon, um, on the lander, 
they actually tried to grow some plants, which apparently worked out okay. And then, of course, they would die in the cold while they're waiting for that next lunar day to happen. But uh, the Chinese, and they also put a rendezvous, uh, sorry, a um, like a communication satellite on the far side of the moon that will then uh, retransmit all of the messages from the lander and the rover back to Earth, which is something that that nobody has has done so far. And in fact, that that relay satellite has a pretty cool radio telescope on board that's actually going to be helping astronomers map out um, the universe at some of its earliest ages. So it's a pretty great um, mission. And in fact, some new photographs were released from the Chinese Space Agency just uh, a couple of weeks ago that showed some interesting rocks that they've been looking at, some weird mysteries. And the Chinese have been doing a really good job of keeping the information flowing out onto the internet. I mean, normally, we as space journalists have a really hard time uh, keeping up to date on on what's going on with the Chinese Space Agency. They're fairly secretive. Um, you find out about things sort of after they happened, not when they're in the works, which I think is sad for them, right? It's a detriment to to them building enthusiasm for their projects. And so they just don't get as much. In fact, you know, uh, the Japanese Space Agency released a whole bunch of information about their new Phobos mission uh, last week. And we were able to write and cover it on Universe Today. I just we just wrapped up uh, writing and shooting a video for for the lander. And so you know, for the people who are working at these space agencies, the more they can get this information out into the public, out onto the internet, um, I, I is just great. And so, anyway, um, so we know now that we know that the Chinese are planning on sending another uh, lunar lander, um, probably within the next year or so. Uh, the next on the on the the Chang'e series uh, five. I'm just get the. I think it's Chang'e 5. I'm not sure when it's actually going. And I'm trying to remember what their what their plans are for the next one. Uh, right, sample return. So um, the plan right now is to launch at the end of this year with another lander, and this one is going to be a sample return. So they're going to they're going to fly, land in a similar location, gather up some some lunar regolith, and bring it back to Earth, which is uh, sort of a tremendous accomplishment to be able to bring a sample back from another world is is tough. And that sort of again, puts China into that next level. I mean, really only Japan, NASA, and the Soviet Union were able to bring samples back from another place. And so to be able to pull this one off is going to be terrific. They're also going to be doing a um, Mars mission, they're going to send a Mars rover uh, this summer at the same time that uh, NASA is sending its Mars 2020 rover and the European Space Agency is sending its Rosalind Franklin rover. So uh, the Chinese are are really rocking when it comes to space exploration. And of course, the long term goal for this whole thing is is to have human footsteps on the moon. If you see their logo, it's in their logo. So um, it's a it's the moon and it's a foot. So that's the plan is to is to bring humans back to the moon. And so I guess, you know, obviously, anyone who works at the Chinese Space Agency who is watching this, uh, as much transparency as you can provide us to help us get the word out on what's happening would be great. So I hope that answers your question.
Uh, Veronica Cure on Twitch asks, do I have any other travel dreams? Uh, I do, but I actually, I'm <clears throat> really fortunate that I get to travel a lot. I mean, uh, almost too much, which I know is sort of like a, you know, is a, is a bad problem to have when, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be to Europe. I've gone and seen rocket launches, uh, in Florida. I've been to Florida many times. Um, I've been up and down the West coast many times, uh, Europe, Australia. Um, I was going to try to go to Asia. Um, so I've, yeah, I've done a ton of, of travel. I'm really fortunate to do it. And, in, and now it's sort of, and anyone who does travel quite a lot, knows like it's fun for a while and especially if it's leisure travel it's great but for business travel it's really hard on you it's hard on the body hard on moving through time zones and a lot of the time you don't get a chance to to be a tourist you're too busy just working in a place that's unfamiliar and uncomfortable so um i try to minimize the amount of non-leisure travel that i do um but you know where would i want to go i mean there's I wanted to go to Japan. Okay. <laughs> but, um, I think that was, that was top of my list is the, the, the place that I wanted to go, but I would love to go to other places in Asia as well. Uh, I'd love to go to like, um, Thailand. I'd love to go to Seoul. So, you know, they're, they're, they're just going to have to get pushed down the queue a little bit. Um, from Ever in Transit 42, uh, has all of the moon been mapped? Yeah, so the moon has been mapped in incredible detail at this point, thanks to NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is uh, sort of like a, the partner to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It's like a really powerful telescope that is in orbit around the moon right now. Uh, taking They just take tons and tons of images. It's been operating for a long time and has given us images of the surface of the moon so precise, so detailed that we can see the, the tracks, the footprint tracks of the astronauts walking around the Apollo landing sites. So you can actually, you know, all of the Apollo landing sites have been imaged from space and you can see the, you know, the, where they left their, the lunar roving vehicle, where the landers were, where the, um, where the various experiments were set up and you can see the footprints, the tracks moving back and forth, like they were walking in the snow. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, it's kind of a, it's amazing the level of, of detail. And what's great now is like, they're able to see fresh new craters impacts that have happened on the surface of the moon. And this was sort of part of the hope was in talking to Phil. Phil Metzger is an expert in, um, <clears throat> lunar technology and about regolith and mining it and how we can use that to support our future space-based, uh, economy as well as, uh, Ryan, um, uh, Ryan Watkins, who's going to be coming in two weeks. Uh, she is as well super knowledgeable about the moon. So I'm trying to sort of queue up a bunch of guests. And, and again, uh, Rob Hoyt from Tethers Unlimited. I'm trying to, you know, I'm super fascinated about this idea of space-based manufacturing and assembly and construction and harvesting, you know, in situ resource acquisition. And so I'm trying to bring on the kinds of guests who are working on that stuff today, who can actually talk about what is the current state. Let's get some reality so we know where we actually stand. Eric one, why does NASA insist on having a lander with both a descent and ascent stage rather than one lander that can do both? 
That is a great question. So for people who aren't sort of clear what this is about, in fact, you're getting a bit of a sneak preview to tomorrow's video, but I guess maybe as a patron, you already saw it. Um, but so the Artemis mission for the for NASA's return to the moon is going to be quite different from what was done in the Apollo era. So sort of, sort of run your mind back to the Apollo era, right, where you the Saturn V took off, flew you know, lost all of its stages, flew to the moon, orbited around the moon, the lander went down to the surface, while the command module continued to orbit, then the ascent module disconnected, you know, the astronauts went out, did some science, got back into the ascent module, and flew up to the command module, and then they flew back, right? And then you've got humans go from the Earth to the moon and back. With the Artemis system, the way it's going to work instead is you're going to have the lunar gateway, which is going to be orbiting around the moon. You're going to have the Orion capsule and then all of the separate parts of the lunar landing system fly to the gateway and then they're going to be assembled kind of like the way spacecraft are assembled at the International Space Station, right? I mean, not assembled, but you know, the way they do spacewalks and things like that, right? And they're going to build the stack and the stack is going to consist of three vehicles. You're going to have the transfer module. You're going to have the ascent module and you have the descent module. And so what's going to happen then is the, the, the ship is going to detach from the station and because it has this this orbit that's taking it around the moon and if and some of the destinations that it wants to go are like down at the southern pole they actually need a lot of delta v to even get from the station like a lot of propellant to get from the station down to the surface of the moon so you're going to use this transfer vehicle and the transfer vehicle will sort of put them on the right trajectory and then it'll detach from the stack and fly back up to the station and then dock again and then ready it's like a ferry boat and then it'll be able to do that again next time it just needs to be refueled and then the ascent and descent module will fly down to the surface of the moon they'll land on the moon astronauts will do their thing then they'll get back into the ascent module leaving the descent module down on the surface of the moon and fly back up and so now you've got the descent module will sit on the moon like what happened with the apollo missions but you can reuse the transfer module and the ascent module for the next mission and so two out of the three parts of the spacecraft will be reusable which is a huge step forward when you think about like you know if they're launching on blue origin rockets which are almost entirely reusable all the parts are reusable it's a very different concept for what on how the apollo missions went or if they you know launch on a falcon heavy where almost all of the falcon heavy is reusable at this point so that's a big part of what they're trying to do and also just to build up infrastructure so you know you land one of these descent modules then you can land another one and then you land another one and you're starting to have all of these resources sitting down on the surface of of the moon so it's going to feel like if it does if it doesn't just turn out to be a like a a boots and and flag event but is actually this sort of long-term sustainable exploration it's going to feel very different from the way the Apollo missions did, where you're going to have astronauts flying to and from the lunar gateway, flying up and down from the gateway down to the surface of the, of the moon. It's going to be a, um, it's in, and I think that, you know, if this works, it's going to be a lot more sustainable than, than the Apollo missions. And so decades, like right now we've had human beings in space continuously for more than 20 years. And so I think we'll get to that point with, with the moon as well. Um, uh, 
uh, Jiro the Hero. What determines whether a rocky planet has a magnetosphere? <clears throat> so I'm going to use this to segue into a topic that I really want to talk about. Um, so, uh, so right now we think that the magnetosphere of the Earth, you know, we're almost certain that it comes from the rapidly rotating uh, iron core that's inside the Earth that acts like a dynamo, kind of like a great big electromagnet, creating the magnetosphere around the Earth. And we don't see one of these global magnetospheres around um around Venus and we don't and, and so the and even though Venus is like the same size as the Earth and so something different happened on Venus that shut down its di internal dynamo and we don't see it around Mars although with Mars it's you know Mars is smaller cooler so it makes sense that it cooled down and it's whatever dynamo it once had just kind of locked up and now it stopped having but we do see it around say Jupiter and Jupiter of course we know probably has this rotating core of metallic hydrogen that acts that's the performs that same function as the core of the earth to provide this global magnetosphere and so one of the things that's really interesting um, is astronomers are proposing this as a, looking for how a magnetosphere interacts with the solar wind from the star as a way to detect planets out there in the in the in the Milky Way, because when the when the solar activity is really high and the and a lot of the particles are hitting the magnetosphere, you get a very specific kind of radio emissions that come off of the planet that are detectable with with a say a telescope on the far or like a radio telescope on the far side of the moon or like the square kilometer array or some really big sensitive radio telescope and it's sort of a great two-part punch because on the one hand you are finding you are using this technique to detect a planet orbiting another star but you're also using this technique to find a planet that is protected by a magnetosphere which is just such a cool idea so um, uh, we're probably going to do a video on this um, probably in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks because I'm really fascinated by it. Uh, it's just like I love new creative ideas to find planets. And we know that without our magnetosphere here on the Earth, we would be, um, you know, we would be constantly bombarded by radiation from space. And isn't it cool that you could use you could be looking for the shield around other star systems to find other planets? Um, Aaron's is the flag still on the moon now that it's 2020 when they land on the moon from the 1960s yeah the flag is all the flags they left on the moon will still be there um, it's possible they would have fallen over they would be uh, but they would be you know there's no there's no wind on the moon there's no there's no rain there's no no weathering at all so they're probably bleached white because they've just been sitting in this intense sunlight for very long periods of time but they're going to still be there so if anyone ever ends up going back specifically to the Apollo landing sites, they'll find the flags and the flags will just be like really faded and bleached because of that intense ultraviolet radiation. Special Katana, how long before the moon drifts away from the Earth will it ever escape orbit? Yeah, the moon is slowly drifting away from the Earth by about a centimeter a year. And <clears throat> I think we did some calculations one time that it was going to take about 50 billion years for the moon and the earth to become tidally locked to each other. And when that happens, then the moon will stop drifting away. The moon and the earth will both be facing, showing each other the same face forever, right? Just going around and around. 
the moon, the Earth will turn and the moon will be in the sky in the exact same spot all the time. But 50 billion years, right? Uh, that's crazy. It's going to take a long time before that happens. So um, the sun will have died, <laughs> expanded, turned into a red giant, blown out its outer layers, died. And still the moon and the Earth will be tidally locked to each other. So. <clears throat> Tesla Ranger, why do astronomers use parsecs and writers use light years? That is a great question. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, for people who, who don't know, uh, a parsec is, is a very specific way that astronomers measure distance. And a parsec is like three point something light years, like it's a little over three light years. And the way you get at a parsec is you know, kind of obtuse. You use it's essentially when you measure the position of a star on one side of the of the of the Earth's orbit, and you can measure an angle sort of using trigonometry, measure the angle to that star. And then you wait six months until the Earth is on the other side of the of its orbit. And then you measure the angle to that star again, compared to the background of the universe, the star is going to kind of blink back and forth a little bit from one position to the other. And that at the angle that you get from that movement of the star forms this great big triangle. And astronomer me astronomers measure uh, one part of that as in as they call it a parsec. And then they use that as a standard method of measuring distance in the uh, in the universe. And so and yet there is the other method, which is light years. And of course, I as a science journalist much prefer to describe things in Oh, nice john Holeran says parsecs are not obtuse, they are acute. Oh, you win the internet, sir. Um, but yeah, like I love the idea of measuring distances by the amount of time that it takes light to travel, right? The, the distance that light can travel in a year is um, is an enormous number. And yet, when we look out into space, we can sort of imagine things using that to sort of try to wrap our heads around these just incomprehensible scales. And parsecs are just another number. But but they're more arbitrary. And so I, it just doesn't seem to but I, I would love to know. I mean, it's just like astronomers consider stars based on the mass of the sun, and they'll use their own little terminology. While, um, you know, a lot of times we'll use things like kilograms or tons or or things like that. I don't know. It's, it's a funny thing. I would love Is there any astronomers in there? I would love to know why astronomers will will stick with parsecs and kiloparsecs and megaparsecs, right? Like the the Hubble constant is measured in um, in megaparsecs per second. And, you know, so but in my mind, I just kind of roughly, I just roughly multiply whenever I see parsecs, I just multiply by three to give me light years. Not that light years are really helpful, right? Like, who can wrap their head around 100 million light years away, but I guess it's easier than 30,000 parsecs, kiloparsecs. Anyway, it's a, it's a funny thing. Uh, Dimes Recon, do they plan on using the descent stage to store fuel that they produce experimentally or some other purpose? So one of the things that, um, that they're going to be doing, so with the, all right, let me sort of explain this bunch of pieces here. So with the lunar landing system, NASA is planning on following the same strategy with providers that they did with the 
supplying astronauts to the International Space Station. So they've got they've got one provider, uh, SpaceX, who's providing Crew Dragon, and then they've got another provider, Boeing, that's providing Starliner. And the plan is to have both options running all the time and to just keep using those two providers. And if one, oh, I don't know, has some problems with software or perhaps reaching orbits, they're able to continue working with the other one. Um, and so the plan for actually sending landers down to the surface of the moon is that they're going to alternate providers. They're going to offer one contract to the 2024. They're going to offer a different contract to the 2028 and just keep going back and forth as they build out this infrastructure on the Lunar Gateway. And that part, I think, is, is you know, super smart um, because you can just see like this, that strategy is totally paying off with the issues that have happened with the Starliner and Crew Dragon. And now we're getting to a point where humans are going to be going back to the International Space Station on an American ship in March. And that's, you know, if if they had just only had one provider, uh, they would have had problems. So I think that's that's I think that's really wise to do that. So one of the providers is probably going to be Blue Origins Blue Moon. And one of the things that's cool about the Blue Moon is it uses a liquid hydrogen oxygen rocket system. And what's cool about that is that you, in theory, can bring water from the surface of the moon, use, you know, use electrolysis to break it into hydrogen and oxygen, and then fill the tanks of your, of your descent stage and eventually take off again. Now, this is way down the road, but they are going to be using this liquid oxygen hydrogen thruster on the surface of the moon to just demonstrate how well this technology, this is the BE-7 uh, rocket, I think it's called. Um, and so I think it's a, sort of a really great long-term idea about how they're going to be able to, um, to test out this idea of in situ resource acquisition, that they're going to um, get resources to fly away from the surface of the moon from the moon. And I think that's, you know, the more of that kind of testing is the, the best uh, that, we can, that we can see. Um, Paranor, will I be doing a special episode on Katherine Johnson? Probably not. Um, so for people who don't know, Katherine Johnson <clears throat> was the mathematician who was featured in Hidden Figures. Um, and she passed away uh, just recently at the age of 101. And if you haven't seen um, Hidden Figures, it's a it's a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, you know, as someone who knows a little bit more about how NASA works, it was sort of, you know, it felt a little, um, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I'd love to know what sort of people's feelings were, what it was like at NASA during these these times. But it's a great, inspiring movie. Uh, very lighthearted, but also, you know, dealing with some really complicated issues. And I really enjoyed it. And she passed away and sort of was, uh, sounds like an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, I don't think we're going to do an episode on it. Although now, now that I'm talking about it, I'm getting, um, I'm getting kind of stoked on it, but we're definitely going to be covering her in universe today. So, uh, you know, remember that I do run a website, so <laughs> we'll be, uh, we'll be probably covering it there as well. Um, 
errands. Why is NASA building another space station on the moon if they have the International Space Station? What's the difference between the lunar station and the ISS? Now, keep in mind that the moon is gets as much as 300,000 kilometers away. It takes a while to fly from the Earth to the moon. And the kind of hardware that you need at the moon is kind of different than what you need floating in low Earth orbit. Part of it is that you're much farther away from the Earth. Any astronauts going there are going to need, um, uh, you know, they're going to need better radiation shielding when they're outside of the Earth's protective magnetosphere. And it just has a different orbit, right? It has an orbit that is useful for getting to and from the moon. That's different from the International Space Station, which serves purposes here closer to Earth. So it's hard to kind of really think about how far away the moon really is. And so it makes sense to provide a small way station. It's only in the beginning, it's only going to be a couple of modules, right? You're going to have two modules in the beginning, you're gonna have the power and the propulsion module, and you're gonna have the habitation module, and then they'll build up more of that infrastructure as they get, you know, over time. So uh, I wouldn't be, you know, it makes sense that, you know, and eventually we will have a space station at Mars, right? I could see us having a space station at Mars before humans ever land on the surface of, of Mars, even though I'm sure uh, that would drive uh, Elon Musk crazy. Um, but, um, but I think that, you know, there's, a, there's some real value to like, for example, going and setting up on Phobos. Because, you know, anytime you can take a break on the way on you making one of these long journeys, it makes a ton of sense. Drones and bones, what's a good 500 ish telescope that I can take photos with? Uh, that's a tough one. So if you want to do astrophotography, I don't think you can really do it with a $500 telescope. Now, you can do some of the bright things. So okay, so here's what I would recommend. Um, I would recommend getting a camera, an inexpensive DSLR camera like an older like, like I just sold my Canon five Mark two for like $500. So you should be able to buy one of those. And they're a terrific camera. They're like a game changer, very sensitive, lots of megapixels. And you can get other cameras, older ones like a Canon EOS or even a Canon T three you can do for for even cheaper. And then I would get sort of a nice fast lens, something that does like a nice wide field of view. And then I would get a tracking mount. And then you can put the the camera and you can use the camera for all kinds of things, right? You can go and take bird pictures, you can take pictures of your friends and family, but you can also use it for astrophotography. And then you put the camera on the tracking mount, and then it tracks the sky as it's watching the sky and you can take these nice long exposure pictures. And if you put a better lens on your camera, you can take stuff like Andromeda or some of the cool star clusters or the Orion Nebula or, or things like that. And that sort of fits within that $500 budget. You can go the other route and get like a nicer telescope, like a Dobsonian that is like a really great telescope to look at stuff in the sky. And then you can get a mount on your telescope on the eyepiece that lets you plug, you know, clip your phone onto the eyepiece and take pictures through the eyepiece. And for very bright objects like Saturn, Jupiter, the moon, Venus, Mars, um, and even some deep sky objects, they look great and they look even great. And there's even like an astrophotography mode, like my, my phone will have an astrophotography mode. So 
Um, so that's my recommendation. The problem is, is that to really take pictures like, like this guy here, that's about a $1,500 setup. And that's like the bare minimum to do the kind of astrophotography that's going to start making you happy. And so, but I recommend go the camera route with a tracking mount. And again, the mounts are like $100 or so. You, can, you know, Celestron makes one. I think Ioptron makes one. There's a few of these. And then practice. And then you'll know whether this is the hobby you're going to want to do, do forever or not. And if not, well, then you still have a camera that you can use for other things. And then if you do transition to a telescope like this with a, with a better mount, then you can take your DSLR camera and you can put it on the end of your camera of your telescope and then take pictures through that. So it's sort of, it's a good way to kind of bootstrap your way up into a more complicated telescope astrophotography environment. So that's what I, that's what I recommend. Um, and a lot of people I know do some, just some amazing pictures with tracking mounts. So I highly recommend that. Let's see. So Dustin King, what do you think of the idea of an Earth Mars cycler? Um, hey, Terranaut, I'm not Phil Metzger. I'm Fraser Kane. Unfortunately, Phil, I think, is clearly not able to show up. So, oh, he's been sick. Yep. Um, so he is sick. So we'll reschedule and and have a time when um, when he's able to show up. So uh, unfortunately, he's not able to to make it. Sorry. <laughs> I know I kind of look like Dr. Metzger, but I'm not. Um, okay, so Dustin King asks, what do you think about the idea of an Earth-Mars cycler? So the idea of an Earth-Mars cycler is a space station that's going to fly from the Earth to Mars on a regular basis and be able to give astronauts a place to stay as they shift to and from one place to the other. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, just like in general, I am a huge fan of of just overall infrastructure in space, the more if we have a space, you know, we have an we have the International Space Station. And then once you have that infrastructure, you think of reasons to use it. Once there is a space station going around the moon, there will be lots of things that we can use that station for. And having some spacecraft that's regularly ferrying people to and from Mars more safely than than just taking a one shot spacecraft, I think makes a ton of sense. So I know this was Buzz Aldrin's uh, is, a, is a big fan of this idea. And I would just love I mean, really any more um, uh, any more just infrastructure that we can have in space to continue just laddering up into becoming that solar system spanning civilization that we know we will eventually become. It's great to begin that process. Uh, Jiro the hero. Since Mars doesn't have a lot of nitrogen, where could we get it from? Could we use another inert gas as an alternate to make breathable air? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. So there are things that are very common here on Earth, like nitrogen. Like there's literally just an unlimited amount of nitrogen. There's tons of nitrogen on Venus. Um, in fact, there's like twice as much nitrogen on Venus as there is on Earth um, in the in the in the Venusian atmosphere. But the thing that Mars is starved for is nitrogen. Of course, we need nitrogen for plants for breathing, right as an inert gas as part of the atmosphere that we breathe. 
And it could very well be that, that we'll have to import nitrogen, that nitrogen will be precious on Mars and, and that there will need to be regular shipments of nitrogen brought in from Earth. And they have to be really careful not to lose it because they use it for growing their plants and for breathing and for all these things that are, that are really important to them. But it's, and so whether it's nitrogen or not, maybe they'll find some source of nitrogen that they can mine and it makes that problem go away. There will be something. There will be some rate limiting step that, that, that Mars doesn't have enough of, and it will make the thing that, that is very valuable for them to bring to Mars. And they may decide to, you know, bring it in from a comet, or they may have to find an asteroid that they can mine it off of, or they'll be able to figure out a way to, to dig down deep underground. And it's just important. I mean, we've seen this happen all the time in the past, right? There are certain this is what trade is about, is that there are certain things like here in Canada, right? We have plenty of trees and uranium and gold and and natural resources, right? And uh, maple syrup. And then of course, there are other places that have less of those things, but they have other things that we want, and then we trade back and forth. And I love that idea, we get to this point where we know what Mars lacks. And there is regular trading that's done between Earth and Mars to make sure that that the plants still grow on time on Mars. So uh, it's like one of those cool problems to have when you get to the point where you have so much infrastructure out there in the solar system that you know what you need and there are regular shipments. Cody's lab says that Mars has quite enough hydrogen nitrogen to fit our needs for quite some time. All right. I, I, I trust Cody on this one. He thinks a lot about this and moose and beaver pelts and diamonds. Yeah. Yeah. And apologies, man. Someone said in the comments that they liked my video, but they just couldn't stand the oots and the boots. So they had to, they couldn't watch it even though the content was good. Um, Sean Marston. Hey, Fraser, my daughter, Sophia, and I love your show. She has a report coming up about a planet and chose Jupiter for her planet. We would love to hear your ideas for a couple of things to include. Uh, wow, that's awesome. Congratulations uh, on uh, on having such a cool space focused daughter. Jupiter is an amazing planet. Man, what would I talk about if I was like doing a science project on Jupiter? Ah. Uh... I don't know. I mean, I think like the moons are almost the part that are more interesting about Jupiter. Io, have you heard there's like a there's a mission that's going to Io uh, that's been announced by NASA. There's Europa, of course, with its with its geysers. So and then uh, Ganymede, uh, which is like the biggest moon in the solar system. So I would focus more on the, on the moons, but also like the incredible pictures that are taken of Jupiter from the Juno spacecraft. I mean, you just can't go wrong with all those pictures. So, so let me know how it goes. Um, Pup 314, when the ISS is ready to deorbit, why not use it as a second gateway to the moon or be the cycle from the Earth Mars transport? Um, yeah, that is a, uh, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people always wonder, like, why can't we use the International Space Station to fly to and from, uh, like the moon, like use it for some other purpose. And the problem, of course, is that it's, it's really heavy, it's really big. 
its purpose is really to be um, orbiting the Earth. And it really can't go, you know, require an enormous amount of fuel to take it away from low Earth orbit. And then it doesn't have the kind of shielding that you would want a spacecraft to have that's outside of the Earth, you know, outside of the protective magnetosphere. And it's getting old, right? It's requiring more and more maintenance every year. So at a certain point, it's just going to have to be deorbited. And so it's just not the right vehicle to take out to the moon. And although it seems like in your mind and it doesn't have the right orbit, right? It's got an orbit like it's, it's really important to wrap your head around this that, that like you've got the Earth and you have the International Space Station flying around the around the Earth, and it's going 28,000 kilometers per hour in orbit, very fast. And so if you want to do anything with it, right, you've got this thing that weighs many tons. And if you want to move into any kind of different orbit, you're going to have to use an enormous amount of fuel. And in some cases, it just makes more sense to launch a new thing into a new trajectory than to try to slow down and push the space station into whatever new trajectory that you need it for. So for all those reasons, the International Space Station is eventually going to be deorbited, and that's going to be that. Hiroshi loves you. Can a base on Deimos help for asteroid mining? Uh, well, so so Deimos is actually so Deimos is one of the two moons of Mars, right? There's Phobos and Deimos, and Deimos is one of the easiest places to reach in the entire solar system. Like, like if you look at the ladder of difficulty of places to reach, you've got low Earth orbit, you've got the moon, and then next pretty much is Deimos, because it's it's in Mars's gravitational well, but you don't actually have to drop down onto the Mars into the Mars gravitational well and then get back out again. And so it's like the first easiest place to go to outside of the Earth moon system. And so it makes a ton of sense to go and explore and set up some kind of permanent base, uh, if possible, on Deimos and eventually Phobos as well has an even lower gravity, it's easier to get to it's farther from Mars. So it's less in its gravity. Well, so we did a whole video about why building a base on Phobos actually makes a ton of sense. And you can take that exact same information. And we actually talked about Deimos as well. Uh, peaks and pokes thoughts on rust as radiation shield. Yeah, we covered this idea on on universe today. And I, I mentioned him in my newsletter on Friday, this idea. So material scientists have figured out that certain kinds of oxides, it looks like they will provide better radiation shielding than aluminum, like the the the, the standard radiation shielding right now is aluminum. And you're really just relying on the on the metal and the protons in the metal to protect you. And what they're finding is, is that that oxides rust, seems to be more effective in terms of radiation shielding by about 30%. So it allows you to either fly the same weight, but get 30% better radiation shielding or make your radiation shielding smaller and more compact for the same weight. So um, uh, or like be able to fly more payload, right, get the same amount of radiation shielding for less weight and less size, which is very useful, especially depending on where you're going to go, right, if you're gonna try and build a spacecraft that's going to go to say the Jupiter environment, um, it's going to be able to be more protected while it's performing its mission, like think about the Europa Clipper. So, so it's a very interesting technology that could have some applications uh, very quickly. Um, uh, I, 
apologize. I can't pronounce your name. My Russian is not good. Um, but it looks to me like owner Nipu. <laughs> um, has the ISS ever had a micrometeor impact? Um, no. Uh, yeah. So the, the ISS has micrometeor impacts all the time. And in fact, there was an, I'm, planning to do a video on this, maybe um, they brought back a battery that had been sitting on the outside of the International Space Station for 19 years. And it was covered in little pockmarks across the entire piece of hardware. So there's tons of them that get hit. And um, uh, Chris Hadfield, uh, Canadian treasure astronaut Chris Hadfield said that when the astronauts are on board the station, they hear the micrometeorites impacting the station. They sound like a little, like a little ping when they're inside the station and they know that some little chunk of metal or, or space rock hit the station and embedded into something. So these happen all the time and every part of the station is, is, is hit by these micrometeorites from space and space debris. Um, Sergio Botero, uh, could it be that there are thousands of moonlets orbiting the gas giants, but we can't see them yet because they are just a few meters long? Yeah, it's almost certain that there are many, many more moons that are orbiting around the Jupiter and Saturn. It's just that the smallest size that we can see from here on Earth using the Hubble Space Telescope is about, I think it's like about five, one kilometer across. So small. But you know, when you think about the size of a, of a space rock, like a kilometer across, it's still pretty big. So, but you can almost—it's almost certain, right? When there is a permanent uh, meteor tracking system, asteroid tracking system set up in the Jovian system, it will be tracking all of Jupiter's moons down to some arbitrary thing. We'll say, well, once it's a meter across, it's no longer a moon. But you would just imagine that that Jupiter has a ton of things orbiting around it and they would be found. It's just the better telescopes you get, the more moons Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus seem to have. I mean, it's even thought that there are more moons for the Earth, but they are they're going to be like a boulder. They're going to be an asteroid that randomly joins the Earth in its orbit around the sun for a couple of years and then drifts away again. So. Drew Durant. Hey, question. Is it possible for two active galactic nuclei to merge? Yeah. So the, um, when the, like an active galactic nuclei, a quasar is a supermassive black hole that is actively feeding on material. And generally this seems to happen when there is some kind of disturbance in the galaxy, when there is some kind of, you know, event that is causing material to be whipped up and spun out and new star formation is happening and material is funneling into the black hole and it's feeding and a, an accretion disk forms around the black hole and jets come out of it hundreds of thousands of light years into space. And the kinds of events that happen that can cause that are galaxies in the process of merging. And so you can imagine the situation where two galaxies do some close flyby, tear each other apart a bit, mix each other up that ignites or causes both of their black holes to go into this active feeding phase. 
And what seems to happen then is the, the galaxies come back together and they spin around some more. And then eventually their supermassive black holes find their way to each other in this combined galaxies. It's all coming together and they merge. Or if the, the difference of the mass is quite significant, one will actually just be bounced out of the galaxy and fly off into space. And so there can very well be supermassive black holes that have been stripped from their galaxies and they are just hurtling through space randomly. Pleasant dreams. But yeah, and so you can imagine these black holes coming together while they're feeding and just turning into one bigger black hole. And then we would be able to detect them, uh, detect their merger eventually with more powerful gravitational wave observatories. Um, Robert Noguera, uh, Pepsi Cola is famously to approach a project like Starlink, where the name Pepsi would be projected in the sky in a similar manner that Starlink does. Have you ever heard about this project into the 90s? Yeah, it was shut down. What a terrible idea. Oh, do not do that. Like, like I can understand the horrible sacrifice of losing a little bit of our night sky so that we can have internet reach the rest of humanity. But so the rest of humanity can be advertised some sort of carbonated beverage? No, thank you. Um, there have been several ideas. There was this ball that was shot into space that was mirrored and was, was theoretically going to be quite bright in the sky. And a lot of people were, were quite against that. Uh, there was, there's been an idea to build like a sculpture that will fly in space and be bright seen from the earth. I think these are all just terrible ideas, right? Like the only, like the sacrifice that, that, that I'm willing to make is the one where humanity is made better, but humanity is not made better by advertising. There was another idea as well that someone was planning like a, a like a grid of satellites that had mirrors on them and they would be able to sort of turn themselves uh, depending on where the sunlight was at. And they could, as you said, they could make graphics, they could spell out things in the sky as they went over some event. What, a, what an awful idea. Do not do that. Whoever you are. Um, no, do not have my vote. I will not invest. Um, Mike McHugh, is there a black hole at the center of all galaxies? There is a supermassive black hole at the middle of almost all galaxies. So, uh, you know, the vast majority of them have a supermassive black hole. And it really seems like the formation process is that the black holes and the, the galaxy around them sort of formed in lockstep from the beginning of the universe until now and sort of build bigger and bigger building blocks. Um, and, but there are a few notable exceptions that have been found. One of them is in fact, the galaxy M 33, which is the galaxy in triangulum. It's one of the biggest, most well-known galaxies in the sky, you could see it with your eyes in really dark skies, but it doesn't seem to have a supermassive black hole in the middle of it. But in general, um, supermassive black holes are at the heart of pretty much every, of every galaxy out there. Um, Walid Damuni, have we ever witnessed two massive objects switch close to each other in a manner which would gravitationally rip each other apart and disperse across space? We have not seen it um, like directly immediately, but we have seen it 
in the process. I mean, the best example is galaxies merging together. And so we can see galaxies that are slowly tearing each other apart with great big tidal tails and streams of stars that are being siphoned away from one galaxy to another. We can detect things like eclipsing binaries and stars which are in situations where one galaxy is feeding on material from the other. And we know this happens because we'll see this flash on this, you know, we'll see a star brighten and it's because the star has collected a bunch of material from its partner and brightened up and it is and sort of has this it's called a nova and shines briefly and then it fades away again and then it happens again and so we know these things are happening but we don't actually see them because we just don't have good enough telescopes yet to be able to detect the the events that are happening but we can sort of detect the after effects the wreckage of these events as they're happening um John Holleran, uh, who does or should have the right to prevent space advertising or mega constellations that will be too light polluting? It's a great question. Um, I mean, it's sort of like the same question of like who decides whether or not we can pollute the oceans, right? The oceans, nobody owns the oceans. They're a shared resource for all of humanity. Uh, but there are treaties that prevent overfishing. There are treaties that prevent certain kinds of pollution being dumped into the oceans. And so the countries have to get come together at the United Nations or or whatever and agree that they're not going to um, that they're not going to pollute space with advertising and set some requirements. I mean, the space is an environment and those laws should get figured out because if they don't, then people will just use it willy nilly. And we know that there will be consequences, right? That we know that just space junk that will prevent future people from being able to fly to space will, will be an issue. So, um, so I hope that we start to get some of these international treaties set up about, you know, to take the next step from the outer space treaty, really the outer space treaty needs a, um, uh, really needs a, needs an update. So, uh, so let's hope that happens. Um, let's see. <laughs> All right, I think I think I'm going to wrap this up here at this point. Um, so again, uh, Phil, apologize. I'll change the title. I'll change the thumbnail, and I'll change all that so that no one will ever know that uh, that we didn't have our guest. And of course, this always does happen that we don't always get our guest. Phil sends his apologies. I hope he recovers quickly. And I know uh, we'll see if he'll come next week since I'm going to be here. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So, uh, but again, I would like to always thank thank uh, thanks the people for donating. That's awesome. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you to, of course, all of the moderators, Nancy for copy pasting all the questions so I could see them and, uh, and everyone watching us live. I really, uh, I really appreciate, uh, just everyone watching and enjoying and seeing what we do. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm enjoying my job and I think that's important that I get to enjoy my job. And that means I'll keep doing this for years and years like I have been already. So, uh, but anyway. Your uh, ongoing uh, viewership means a lot to me, and uh, I will see all of you uh, next next week. I'm not going anywhere. See you later, everybody. How do I stop this thing? Oh, right there.